I want to do a real quick review sort of, of of what's been happening. I missed you guys last week, by the way. I was with Vineyard Missions doing a security field training event in the mountains in Colorado, and I was actually uh, part of a... We, we were doing field security for workers and people in the mission field, and we were part of a... Uh, we, we were kidnapped as part of, taken hostage by terrorists during part of the event. It was quite fun. My, my friend Mark Walker summed it up as we were leaving uh, Saturday night. He said, well, this time yesterday I was tied to a tree. So uh, it was a lot of fun. It was very interesting. It was, I'll tell you, the biggest thing about it was sobering. Just to think of, um, we, we don't realize how people in other parts of the world live every day. The, the pressure and the threat that they're under every day. We don't realize people in the mission field who are putting their life on the line to do what they do in the name of Jesus. And it was, it was a, a sobering and powerful event. Um, so we hopefully can use that to keep some of our uh, cross-cultural church planters and missionaries safer as they do what they're doing. Um, this year, in the beginning of the year, I, I said we were going to focus uh, as kind of a theme for the year not really just a teaching series, but sort of an overarching theme this year, focus on the issue of community and three aspects of that, loving our community, building this community, and learning to be community. And we actually started off back in January on the third of those, and we talked about communication and forgiveness and relationship and some things that will help strengthen us as we learn to be community together. Uh, What I want to do this morning, we took a little break for Easter, we did our Priester series Easter, and then last week my friend James was here filling in for me while I was being kidnapped. Um, This morning I want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about building this community for a few weeks, and then that's going to transition uh, after about three weeks into loving our community. And Wally also mentioned this morning our Thousand Hours campaign this summer between the dates of July 16th and August 13th, so that's about a four-week period. we are going to endeavor to serve our community in a total of a thousand hours, a thousand man hours in one month of community service. Just giving and serving and loving people around us. We are going to work with the school district, with, of course, uh, people that are in, in poverty and in need in our community, but also with public servants, fire department, police department, the city council, the mayor. Uh, just really get out and serve our community for a total of a 1,000 hours in four weeks. It's not going to be easy. I realize that's a lofty goal, um, and we're going to need everybody's help to do that. But our heart is really just to bless our community and love people in the name of Jesus and share what he's given with us. So that's where we're going. But in the meantime, I, I want to talk about uh, building this community for a couple weeks. And I want to begin today with uh, a little phrase, blessed to be a blessing. And if, you're, if you've been around here, if this is your church home, if you've been here probably more than twice, you're, you've seen that phrase. It's uh, on our welcome slide every week. It's on our bulletin board in the back. It's on our bulletin. It's on the header of our website. Uh, it's pretty much everywhere. Everything we do says blessed to be a blessing on it. So what I want to do over the next few weeks is define that a little bit. When we say blessed to be a blessing, what do we mean? What, what exactly are we talking about uh, what, do, what does that look like, practically speaking, as, as we live it out? So that's what we're going to talk about. Today I'm going to do a little bit of an overview, and then next week talk specifically about being blessed, and then in a couple weeks about being a blessing. So let's just pray, and then we'll get into the Word.
Father, thanks for this day. Uh, just to thank you that the sun finally came out. Uh, amen for that. And just bless us this morning as we open your word. And uh, just allow it to penetrate our hearts. That it might bring transformation in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. You happy that the sun's out? I'm happy the sun's out. I love it. I love when the sun comes out. Um, I want to begin at the beginning. Uh, Blessed to be a blessing is a paraphrase of a passage in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord is speaking to Abraham here, when he, as before he's Abraham, as he's still Abram. And he says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household. So go from those things to the land I will show you. When you do that, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So if you summarize that, God's saying, I will bless you, that you then can bless others. As you uh, read through the Old Testament, the history of God's people, there's sort of a progression of thought. In the first few chapters of Genesis, there are four main events that the scripture is built around that describe kind of the beginnings of the formation of God's people. They are, of course, creation, the creation of man, and then uh, short on the heels of creation, the fall of man, uh, followed a couple chapters later by the flood and, and uh, Noah's experience there. As you come out of that, we go into the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and those four events really give us sort of the prehistory or early history of the formation of humanity, uh, creation, and God's people. And then in chapter 12, the narrative shifts a little bit away from events and onto people. The remainder of Genesis focuses on four people, Abraham, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and then finally uh, the latter chapters of Genesis focus on the life of Joseph and those chapters all chronicle the development of God's people through these four we call patriarchs or fathers of the faith. And all of that begins in chapter 12 with Abram and God's call to Abram, which is right here in these few verses. Um, so one of the things that we see in God's call to Abram is a spiritual principle, a biblical principle. Uh, it's a kingdom principle. It's a truth that carries all throughout Scripture. Uh, that's a mustard tree. And one of the first principles we see of the kingdom of God described in Scripture is what we might call the mustard seed principle. And the mustard seed principle is simply this, that God always starts small. God always starts small. The kingdom grows from a beginning, a, a typically not auspicious beginning. It grows from a, a small place, a humble place, a hidden place, uh, and then it, it develops from there and becomes something big that blesses other people. Uh, that's, how, that's how it works. And we do see that process sort of described all through Scripture. Uh, it begins with uh, you know, a, a, a small seed, or in this case, with a person, a guy named Abram, one, one person. Abram was one person, and through that little mustard seed, God says, 
I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you not only into a great nation, you one guy into a nation, but then I'm going to take that nation and use it to bless all the other nations. I'm going to make you a great nation. Uh, The question I have in regard to, to this, to this principle and to the reality that, you know, if you just trace it all the way through where we are today, started with Abram. What might God want to do through you? What might God want to do through me? How many stories do you know, have you heard, have you read uh, of a, a, a ministry, a church, a movement beginning in the heart and mind of, of one person? There, there are lots of them out there. There, there, there. there are virtually every move of God, every work of God, every ministry that's out there today, every, everything that happens in the kingdom somehow, somewhere, began in the heart of a person. It started small. It wasn't a big thing. It was a little thing that God blessed, and it grew. Um, I think, you know, I've read dozens of biographies and and different things that that we could talk about, but, you know, when I think about this, what always comes to mind for me is our friends DJ and Lynette down at Dora Faith. How many of you guys have been to Dora Faith before? A lot of you have. Some of you haven't. I would encourage you at some point in the future, if you have not, (laughs) to get a chance to go <clears throat> Dora Faith is a, an orphanage in Baja, California, in Mexico, that DJ and Lynette shoots run. And it began uh, back in the early 80s. We, we, we used to do, I was the youth pastor at the Vineyard in Anaheim, California, and we would do uh, Mexico ministry. I wanted to take our kids into the mission field and give them some exposure to what God was doing in the world around them outside of their door. It was really interesting. Um, doing that ministry, living where we lived, a, a lot of our kids uh, grew up in Orange County and, that, and, and sort of in a sheltered environment. Uh, so we would travel what was really about two and a half to three hours. So just about like going from here to Seattle to into Mexico, and all of a sudden they're in a different world. And I remember some of those kids' eyes opening up and just thinking, oh my gosh, this is not Laguna Niguel. You know, is a very, very different reality. So there was a real contrast there. But we got involved with uh, an orphanage there that no longer exists uh, called Hogar de Luz. And I, I met a gentleman named E.G. von Truxler. He's an old German uh, minister. And he ran an organization called Spectrum Ministries. They would take teams into Mexico and they would bless other works and organizations there. They would bring food, water, supplies, whatever they needed. And... Uh, so he took me into Mexico one day, and we visited several sites, and I, I told him, I want to get our, our young people involved in missions. And we went to this little orphanage called Hogar de Luz, and uh, he said, hey, Glenn, this is a place that really needs help. If you guys wanted to minister, this is a place that could use your help. Uh, some of you that have been to Dora Faith, I'm just going to, okay, this is true confessions now. How many of you that have been to Dora Faith have been to the taco stand in Cantamar? Yeah, I knew I knew it. <laughs> uh, so if you've ever been to the taco stand in Cantamar, you know where Hogarty Luce used to be because just behind the taco stand down one of those little side streets is a plot of land. And that plot of land is really about, quite honestly, uh, the size of this room. Maybe a little bit bigger, but really not much. And that's where this original orphanage sat. And it was run by an elderly couple, Mama and Papa Torres. And Mama Torres was about this big. She was in her mid-70s. And anytime you would show up there... Uh, she would come out and greet. It doesn't matter what time of day or night it was. 
she was there ready to go. She would come out and greet you, and she would hug you and welcome you and pat your face. And I, I always, I, I, for years, I, I felt like I was special, like she was waiting for me to show up. I realized later she did that to everybody. It doesn't matter who showed up. You got the same treatment. Uh, but I always felt special. And she would welcome me, and she always had hot coffee on. She would give me coffee. She would feed us. Papa was different. Papa wore a, he was about the same height, had a big mustache, and he always wore an L.A. Dodgers batting helmet. And I don't know if he was waiting for fallout or what he thought was going to happen, but I never saw him without the batting helmet on. And Papa, interestingly enough, this is a true story. I, I can't make this stuff up. Uh, before he converted to Catholicism and gave his life to serving orphans, actually rode in Pancho Villa's army and was a Mexican mercenary or whatever Pancho Villa's guys did. I don't know. But he had a radical conversion. They started this little orphanage. Papa's and Mama's children grew up and uh, went to college and got jobs and did the kind of things that most young people do. But what that did is it left a void. There was nobody to run the orphanage because it was family run. And so um, we would take teams down there for several years. And uh, two guys began to, out of my youth team, began to lead our orphanage trips. A guy named Rick Van Cleef, who some of you know, who lives in Boise now, and DJ. And after a few years, Papa and Mama got so old they couldn't run the orphanage anymore. And the orphanage was going to actually close down because there was nobody to take care of it. And DJ said, we can't let this happen. There's got to be a way that we can do something to help these kids. And at that time, those of you that have been to Door of Faith know there's a hundred or more kids at Door of Faith on any given day right now. It's, it, it's fluid. It fluctuates. But I've never been there in the last 15 years where there have been less than a hundred. There were about 12 kids on site at that time. DJ began to pray and God put in his heart to uh, move to Mexico. DJ grew up in Orange, California and owned a furniture company. He was 26 and more or less independently wealthy. He could pretty much do what he wanted in his life. And God said, I want you to go to Mexico and start an orphanage. And he did. He began to look at some land and, and they found a plot of land that was for sale. Uh, that plot of land is about five miles from where the current orphanage site is. And the reason the orphanage isn't on that site is they were actually surveying the land and preparing to make a down payment to buy that land when a guy that owns the current site called DJ up and said, I want to give you this land to put an orphanage on. The, the place where Dwarf Faith is now, this is all history that is just incredibly interesting to me. I don't know, maybe to you, but in the 1950s, it was a gun club for uh, Hollywood types. John Wayne and people like that would go down to Mexico and hunt quail and pheasant and stay at this gun club. And so there were some buildings on the property and that property was deeded to DJ and Lynette to start Door of Faith. And any of you that have been there know what's happened. And over the last 20-some years, of course, how many children have been raised and got an education and had a family and known a life that they would never have known otherwise? It's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. How many youth groups have had teenagers from America, their hearts and lives changed by what has happened to them there? I mean... Uh, if you go through the history of our church, I don't know how many there have been here, uh, but that we're one church of dozens and dozens that go. How many people have found a path into ministry? There's at least six people that I can think of, and I probably forgot some from our church, that have spent an extended period of time there uh, focused on 
serving and giving and learning more about missions. And again, we're one church of dozens. And so all of that story to say this, that God starts small. He starts in the heart of one person and, and grows from there. Um, there. There's two things, I think, that we, we see in the call to Abram. Um, the other is that in the beginning, from the beginning, from day one, it was God's intent to bless the whole earth. It was God's intention to bless the whole earth. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not some, not a select few, not Americans. Uh, I hate to burst your bubble. Sometimes we get the impression that God is on our side. And as Americans, we're the chosen nation and that uh, we're friends of God and so our enemies are God's enemies. But you know what? That's not accurate. And there's no biblical precedent for that. God's desire is to bless all the people's on earth. Um, and that's what uh, he has always intended to do. Um, he speaks this to Abram. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And then I'm going to bless everybody on earth through you. It's an important concept. And, and one of the reasons we know it's an important concept, and this is just a little uh, Bible study hack that I'll give you today. Anytime something is repeated in Scripture, it's usually important. If Jesus says something twice, there's a reason he says it twice. It's not because he's stuttering. It's because he wants to emphasize the fact that this is an important thing. Uh, one of the reasons we know that this principle was important is because God repeats it over and over and over again. Abram becomes Abraham. Uh, he uh, gets a little bit older and he and his wife, Sarah, are past childbearing years. Now remember, all this time he's carrying with him this promise that I'm going to make you into a great nation, which would uh, begin somehow with having a child, right? You've got to start somewhere. And they have no children as of yet. They're way beyond the age when they can have children. Sarah's words, if you want to read it, it's, it's pretty interesting. She's, you know, and I, I wouldn't say this about an older lady, but she says, I'm worn out and Abraham's old. You know, quite frankly, this ain't going to happen. Um, and you know the story. God reminds her she's going to have a child. And what does she do? She laughs. Sarah laughs. That's, that's the funniest thing I've heard all day. But God says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. All the nations on earth will be blessed through him. He reminds them of the promise. And of course, you know the rest of the story. They're through some trial and error and some false starts and uh, trying to take things in their own hand. They ultimately do have a child, their son Isaac, who becomes that promised child, the seed that would become this great nation. Uh, and so it all looks good. Things get brighter uh, for the future of the nation that, was going, uh, that is to be born through Abram, but then God does a very, very strange thing. He speaks to Abram one, Abraham one day, and he says, I want you to go to a place called Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac there. And Ab Abraham is uh, dealing with the reality on two levels. Spiritually, this is the promised child. This is what God told me would happen. And now he's telling me to sacrifice him. 
On a personal level, this is his son. This is his only son. And Abraham chooses to be obedient. And he takes the things he'll need for the sacrifice and he begins to climb up Mount Moriah. And he's about to sacrifice his son when God speaks again. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself. I love that. I swear by myself. Swear on me. Declares the Lord that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. So once again, God reminds Abraham of the promise. Eventually, uh, at the ripe old age of 175, Abraham passes on and the, uh, the narrative in Genesis as well as the promise of God shifts to his son Isaac. And in chapter 26 of Genesis, a famine strikes the land and the Lord speaks to Isaac and reminds him again of the word that he gave to his father. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while. I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, again, all the nations on earth will be blessed. So we know that this was an important concept because God reminds his people of it over and over and over again. Sometimes God gives us a promise for something and it seems as though it's not going to happen. It seems like all odds are against it, like there's no way, like it's impossible. And I, I, my encouragement today is just to remember this story and to prayerfully allow the, the Lord to speak into your heart and voice, uh, into your heart with his voice and remind you that uh, those things are still true and good, that God's promises are good to us. Um, we'll, we'll see in a couple of weeks that this idea of blessed to be a blessing Receiving God's blessing and then sharing with others is carried all throughout Scripture. It doesn't end in Genesis. It continues through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's always this idea that the blessing of God is to be received and then shared. That, it, that it's never to be hoarded and, and kept to ourselves. That we're never to be uh, sort of you know, blessing mongers, but we're to share that blessing and to... And to, to give it to the people that are around us. Um, we partner with God in that process. So God wants to bless all nations, but he's going to bless them through us, through his people, and carry that blessing on. In the New Testament, Peter makes this fairly clear. In First Peter chapter 2, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Where the priests of God, the holy nation i.e. Israel, now we're God's people, we're the chosen people, God's special possession. And then he says why that's happening. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. There's a purpose behind what God's doing in and through his people. Um, the other thing I would point out here is that this, this calling is not simply geographic. It's not just out of Egypt into the promised land. Sometimes we can get locked into the geography of things. I say God wants to move us from here to there. <coughs> there is a reality of that, but the greater reality is that it's cultural. God wants to move us 
out of the ways of the world, out of the behavior and attitudes of the world, uh, and to, to be unique and holy, holy meaning just consecrated or set aside to the Lord, set apart for the Lord. He wants to make us uh, different than the world around us. Uh, he reminds in the book of Exodus, Moses of this again. The same concept carries forward. And you know the story there. Israelites have been taken captive. They've been living in Egypt as slaves. They uh, escape Pharaoh's hold and God parts the Red Sea. They cross the Red Sea. He closes the Red Sea and swallows up Pharaoh's armies. And then the Israelites are free now from captivity to go to the promised land. It's a short distance away. If you look at the map, it's a few weeks time to get there, but it takes them 40 years. They're three months into that process. Three months into the process. They're already growing a little impatient and a little cranky. And God has to talk to Moses and remind him again of the process. Moses went to God. The Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be, my, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so it's not simply ge- geography, but culture that counts. God wants us to be a different people, a kingdom of priests. And, and really, the, the idea that we are priests is the key to this. Um, the priest's role was what? The priest's role was to be a mediator. The priest's role was to bring people into the presence of God. You get to God through the priest. The people of God are called to be holy and separate so that they <laughs> can set an example for others to follow <coughs> <clears throat> and help draw them into that place of, the God, of God's presence. <clears throat> now, as you read through the remainder of the Old Testament, um, something you find is that Israel fails on both points fairly regularly. They fail, one, to receive the blessing from God, and two, to then share that blessing with others. Um, they, they don't have the ability, or they fail at being set apart and consecrated, and holy, and distinct, what they do very regularly is forget what God has called them to be and begin to adopt and adapt the culture of the world around them. They want to be like everybody else. And we see this time and time again as they take on other practices and integrate other, other cultural realities into who they are. The place, at the, the one point in the Old Testament where it becomes the clearest is in the book of Samuel, all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel at Ramah. Israel had no king prior to this. They were, they were God's people set aside for him. And they said to him, you're old, your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, and this is the key phrase, such as all the other nations have. We want to be like everybody else. They have a king, we want a king. And God is very clear to Samuel in regard to what they're really saying here. Samuel's disappointed. The Lord said, listen, all the people are saying to you, it's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. God said, I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I want to be your king. And they said, no, we want to be like everybody else. 
They, they failed uh, to be able to be God's holy people set aside and consecrated on numerous levels. I want to contemporize this a little bit and bring it into uh, our culture today. First, I want to just establish, Galatians tells us that we today are the Israel of God. So we, we understand that the church today rep- is, is represented as God's people. What was Israel is now you and I in the church today. We are the Israel of God. We are to be that people that's called and set aside. And we need to ask, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we, as God's people today, distinguish ourselves from others? In what ways have we adapted or adopted the culture around us uh, and not been kept ourselves distinct and separate from God's people? I want to challenge you today, and I, will, I know we're running late. We'll wrap up here real quick. But I want to challenge you to uh, maybe look beyond some of the more obvious ways in which we maybe have become like the culture. You know, there's that old phrase, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. And so those are the obvious. So if your girlfriend chews, it's time to move on. That's just a little hint from me to you, okay? Um, But I would consider, maybe in a bigger picture, what what, what are the cultural issues of today and how have we adopted those in our own thinking, and how have we or can we be separate from those things? And I would consider really those things that are hot buttons and cultural issues today. The one that comes to mind most clearly and most visibly for me is the idea of immigration and the refugee crisis in Syria and other places in the world today. And I would just challenge you to ask the question, um, what is the attitude of Jesus on that? How does blessing all the nations of the earth fit into that? I don't think it's an easy answer, but I think it's one that we have to address as Christians. I think about the environment that we live in today, the world that we live in, and environmental care, creation care, whatever you want to call it, is, is, a, is an issue. And it's debated back and forth. And how, how do we do that? What don't we do? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? I, I would just say this. God created the world, and he said it was good. And the Psalms tell us that all creation declares the glory of God. If that's true, would it not make sense that we should take care of it? I don't know. Um, We live in a politically hostile culture today, and I believe that we have got to ask the question, what does it look like to be a distinct people? What does it look like to separate ourselves from the world around us? How have we adopted the ways of the culture without even maybe realizing that we've done it? And can we search our own hearts and say, Lord, is there a way that you've called us to be distinct and separate that we might receive blessing from you and then be able to pass that blessing on to others? Let's go ahead and uh, end there and we'll, we'll pray.